We're going through the book of Judges, and it's a heavy book. If you've been here with us, you have discovered there's a cycle within this book of Judges where the people of God, Israel, rebel against God. They find themselves in oppression to the gods of, and the people to whom gods they started to worship. They find themselves in oppression to them. They're hurting, so they cry out to God for help. God mercifully helps them, sends a savior, a judge, a deliverer for them. They're rescued. There's a time of period, uh, a peace, a peaceful period of time, and then the judge dies, and the cycle repeats itself. They rebel. If you've been with us also, I'll hit a couple of highlights. Three weeks ago or four weeks ago, we looked at an evil king who had his thumbs and his big toes cut off. Two weeks ago, we had a handicapped, unlikely man who was sneaking in to kill the king by stabbing him in the belly. And last week, there was a woman named Jael who killed an evil king by driving a tent peg through his head while he was asleep. The Mayberries canceled their camping trip for this coming weekend after that story. Somehow these stories show us the consequences of living a life where we are forgetting God. And they also show us to the point, or they point us to the fact that Jesus is the only one who can be our true deliverer. Forgetting God doesn't mean that they were unaware of God. It means they were living in a way where they knew the facts of who God was, who he was and what he had done, but their heart was not affected by it. They lived as though they did not know those facts. There was a disconnect from their facts in their mind to the faith in their heart. Tonight we're learning the story of Gideon. It's a little less bloody, and I am excited to share this with you. There are two chapters we're covering tonight. Judges is a large book, and we're covering it in 12 weeks. We're taking a a chunk of two chapters tonight. So I'm going to tell you the story of Gideon, and we're going to go back and hit four highlights that show us how we know God is with us. Gideon was a man who was under the oppression, as you just heard, of the Midianites. He was threshing grain one day in the wine press because he could hide it there. People would come in and steal from them, and they would go hungry. So he was threshing grain in a wine press. He was a poor man. He was not privileged at this point. A messenger of the Lord visited him and said, To Gideon, God is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon was less than ready to hear this and responded something like this. He says, I don't know if you've noticed what's going on around here, but times are tough, and I'm basically hiding my food from the enemy so he won't steal it. It doesn't exactly feel like God is with me. The messenger was later referred to as the Lord. At this point in the story, it shifted, and instead of being an angel of the Lord, it shifted to being the Lord. And it seems like we have an indication, especially with the evidence of the New Testament, that this is an appearance of the Son of God talking to Gideon, because Gideon sees him again, and he says, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord replied, Don't be afraid. Peace 
You will not die. So Gideon was told that he was going to destroy the altars dedicated to false gods that his dad built. That was his first assignment. He obeyed that assignment. And the people found out that it was him, and they wanted to kill him for it. But his father, whose idol altars he just destroyed, stood up for him and said, Hey, instead of killing him, why don't you let Baal, the false god, fend for himself? Let him take care of Gideon if he has an issue with it. Gideon received a cool nickname after this one, Jerubbaal. Jerubbaal. So hard to say, so I'll say it just once. It means this, let Baal contend with him. Instead of calling him Gideon, his nickname is, let Baal, the false god, contend with him. It came time to prepare for battle. God had told him that you're going to be the savior for Israel. I'm going to use you to deliver them. And it came time to prepare for battle, and Gideon asked God for a sign that God had power enough to save Israel through him. He laid out a fleece and asked God to make only the fleece wet from the dew and keep the ground dry. The next morning, he picked up the fleece and wrung out a bowl full of water from that fleece. And he said, okay, don't be angry with me, Lord, but I'm going to reverse it. So tonight, make the ground wet all around the fleece, but keep it dry. And the next morning, it was so. The Lord did that just for him. So God raised up 32,000 soldiers for Gideon to go to battle with. That's a nice-sized army, I would think. They're ready to fight, and God looks at the army and says, Okay, Gideon, that's way too many soldiers. We're going to have to cut them down a little bit. We're going to weed some people out. So I want you to go and tell the army, If any of you are afraid, you are free to go home. And 22,000 left. Now he only has 10,000 men. And God looks and he sees this and he says, Ah, it's still too many. I'm going to call out some more. I'm going to separate them for you. Take them down to the river and I want you to have them drink from the river and I want you to only keep the ones who kneel down and scoop with their hand and drink like this. If they get on all fours and they drink like a dog from the river... I want you to weed them out. They can't be part of the army. And so they did that. And only 300 men scooped the water. 32,000, 10,000, 300. So God knows Gideon is afraid because he's smart to be afraid with only 300 men against an army whose camels are too numerous to count. So he tells Gideon, he says, go down to the camp with your servant during the night. I want you to listen to the stories they're saying. So Gideon goes down with his servant, and he overhears a soldier telling other people his dreams. And they interpret the dream as a sign that Gideon's army is mighty, and they're going to destroy them. So they are terrified of Gideon's army. So from the outside, this army is huge and strong and mighty and cannot lose. But on the inside... They're terrified. Have you ever known someone like that? Who from the outside, they looked like they had everything together. They were strong. They had everything going for them. But on the inside, they were crumbling. 
Has that ever been you? Let's not get too personal right now. So Gideon receives this great news, and he attacks. He divides them into three groups of a hundred, and they surround the edge of the camp at night, and the guards are, sh- are changing shifts, and so it's a strategic time for him to do this. And he, just, he says, on my mark, I want all of you, they all had a trumpet, just blow that trumpet as loud as you can, smash this pitcher, make this loud noise, and put your torches up and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And they did just that, and it scared them to death, literally. They started running around, and they were terrified, and they got confused because the, the guard shift was changing, and so they started fighting one another, killing one another, and they ran, and they fled, and Gideon won the battle. That's amazing. They ran away. If you're taking notes, I want us to look at four highlights in this story that show us how God is with us. You can make notes on the back of your worship folder or type it into your phone or tablet if you want as well. But here are four ways that we know God is with us. The first one is this. Number one, God's word defines us. We know God is with us because God's word defines us. If you remember in the story, Gideon didn't feel qualified to do what God told him to do. He didn't think God was with him since all these bad things were happening around him. In fact, he felt like God had abandoned him. Look with me in Judges chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, you mighty warrior. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? Maybe you feel like he's abandoning you right now. Gideon had found himself defining himself by the circumstances. He was poor, he was oppressed, and he was in no position to lead a revolt against the formidable opponent. In his eyes, God had forsaken him, abandoned him. He felt like an orphan in regard to his relationship with God. But God defined him differently. He did not see him that way. He called him a mighty man of valor, and this is before he ever went to battle. Interesting. God defined him as the one through whom God would save Israel. That's how God defined him. He had his days of hiding his wheat numbered. The days of him hiding his wheat from his enemies were coming to an end. I wonder if you and I let other people define who we are. I wonder if our view of ourselves has God's view of us in it, or if it's mixed with other things. One of the issues Gideon's father had was he was aware of who God was, but he threw in these other gods with him. And so there was confusion. Who does God say we are? You see, it's God's word that defines us. He finds value in us when the world doesn't. He doesn't care about our abilities or what we can bring to him. He cares because he's created us in his image. 
And God stands ready to redeem us from sin and death right now. He's ready to rescue us because, simply, He loves us. One way God shows He is with us is through His Word defining us. He defines who we are, showing us that He finds great value in us, like He did in Gideon, when no one else does. second one is this. The first one is God's Word defines us. The second way we know is God gave us a sign. God gave us a sign. Gideon was told to do this incredible task. He was asked, asking God for a sign. I mentioned already, but he was confused about his upbringing because while he was aware of who God was, his father also worshipped these other false gods. So he knew about the Lord in the history of events, but why should he believe this God over that one? So Gideon was asking the Lord to show himself to be the true God, to be the sovereign, to be the one who had power over nature. So he asked for signs. Look in verse 17 of chapter 6. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, so Gideon is speaking to the angel of the Lord here, if, I have, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring my present or my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will stay till you return. So at the very beginning, he's like, stay here. I'm going to get this offering for you. Don't leave. I'll be right back. And so God gives him that sign. And then he asks for another sign later on. In verse 36, look with me here. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece and wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on, the, on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. One thing this verse is not telling us to do is to go and ask God for signs. Have you ever said, Lord, if you want me to have this job, just make the phone ring at 8 o'clock tonight? Something like that. That may not be exactly. God, if you want me to do this and just make this happen, we need to be careful because this is not what God is teaching us here. Satan was tempting Jesus, and he told Jesus to test God by asking for a sign, and Jesus rebuked him during that. So Gideon wasn't doing what often we do in looking for signs from God. He wasn't looking for little signs to help him make a decision. He was seeking to understand the nature of God. Remember, he did not have a Bible to read or a baptism or communion or church family to go to. He was weak, isolated, and uninformed. His request was to build up his faith in the Lord. So God has given us a sign in his nature today. We know his sign in nature today, and his sign that he has given to us is Jesus the Son of God. 
We don't have to throw down a fleece and ask God to do the miraculous because Jesus was thrown down on the cross and has shown his power over nature by being raised from the dead on that first Easter morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 teach us this. It says, Long ago, at many times, and this is including Gideon, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God has given us a sign much greater than a fleece. He's given us the risen Savior, his Son. So God's word defines us. We know he's with us. His word defines us. We know God is with us because he's given us a sign. And we know God is with us. The third thing is that God reassures us. Don't stay discouraged if you ask God for signs this morning. Or maybe during church. Don't stay discouraged if, I, if you feel like I'm trying to take something away from you in your relationship with God because God does not want you to be discouraged and he wants you to have assurance. God reassures us. He wants us to be assured of our relationship with him. He doesn't desire for us to wander aimlessly and doubt who we are and who he is. He is a caring, loving father who reassures us if we will let him. Gideon's army went from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300. You think he may have had a few doubts in the validity of God's plan? God was aware of this, and he reassured him because he knew that Gideon was afraid. Look with me in verse 9 of chapter 7. That same night the Lord said to him, this was the night before the battle, he said, Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then Gideon went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So the Lord told him to go down to listen to them. One of the soldiers had a dream, and he was explaining it to another guy, and the guy says, Oh no, that dream means that Gideon's army is coming, and he's going to destroy us. We're doomed. They were certain they were going to lose. And Gideon heard from the enemy's mouths that they believed they were going to lose. And now look in verse 15 of the same chapter. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation... He worshipped. That stood out to me a lot this week. Can you imagine that? 300 people, you're terrified. God is asking you to do the impossible, and you go down here and you're terrified. You sneak into this camp, and then God shows you exactly what you need to hear, and you just worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said confidently, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He reassured him. The whole book, the whole letter of 1 John in our New Testament is written to assure us 
that we know that we have come to know God. The Holy Spirit works in us to assure us that we are God's children. When you love someone, you reassure them of that love by telling them, I love you. You don't say it just one time and and leave it at that. You reassure them with, I love you. That's what good husbands and wives do. And good parents and good people. We reassure people. But we are a lot like Gideon today. We need repeated assurance from God. And God does that through his word. He does that through the Bible. He assures us through his people. He does that through his church. He reassures us even through circumstances in our lives. Because sometimes we're in the right place at the right time for, to receive God's blessing. Has that ever happened to you? In that moment, we worship him. How do we know that we have, reassured, we have been reassured by the Lord and, and not going down uh, the wrong path? We know that we have been reassured by him when it leads us to worship the Lord with heartfelt praise. When we have a radical and confident obedience in him, like Gideon. He was reassured by God, he worshiped the Lord, and then he told his small but powerful army, let's go. The Lord has given the enemy into your hands. We have nothing to worry about because God has reassured me. God loves to reassure his children. Are we listening to him? Are we obeying him in order to have him reassure us? Gideon still had to be obedient and go down into the camp at night, which had to be a terrifying thing for him. But in his obedience, God reassured him. Through his obedience, God reassured him. Reminds us to walk in obedience to the, to the Father. So God's word defines us. God gives us or gave us a sign through Christ. And God continues to reassure us. And the fourth thing is this. We know, we know, you may want to underline know if you write that down. We know through repentance. We know through repentance. So we're at the end of the story. Gideon's army has won the battle. To get this point, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. The people cried out to the Lord for help because of the oppression they were under. It was bad for them. In the past stories of Judges, they would cry out to the Lord and God would immediately send a deliverer for them. But this time, he inserted a prior step to the Savior, the deliverer coming. He sent them a message first. And here's the message in verse 7 of chapter 6. So when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And he closed with this. But you have not obeyed my voice. 
So Israel was impoverished. They were in desperate need of a Savior, but before God sent that Savior, he needed to let them know why they were needing to be rescued in the first place. They needed to be rescued because of their sin. They did not obey the voice of God. Sure, they cried out in, uh, in angst for God to rescue them, for God to help them, but it was regret and not repentance. They were not grieving their sin against God. They were grieving the consequences of their sin. It didn't bother them that they had sinned against God. In fact, had the consequences been good for them in their rebellion, they never would have cried out to God. But the consequences were bad for their sin, and so they wanted help from God. They only grieved how their own lives were a living nightmare from which they could not awaken. There's a difference between between regret and repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, we read from the Apostle Paul, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So regret is sorrow over the consequences of sin. If Israel had been doing well, they wouldn't have cared. Their hearts were not disgusted with the sin that was within their hearts. They were disgusted and terrified of the consequences of their sin. Regret is also different because when you have regret, you stay in regret. You don't move from it. There's no healing. But repentance removes regret from your lives. Repentance is different because it focuses on the only permanent result of sin. Here's the permanent result of sin. You ready? Losing the Lord. That is the only permanent result of sin. You lose the Lord. You lose Him. The Lord, the Creator, gone. When we repent, we're ready to move past the things that we've done because the Lord has forgiven us. And through repentance, we have the one permanent thing that will never be taken away, the Lord. We say, I have deserved far worse than what has happened to me. But the real punishment fell on Jesus, and I will never have to face that. Repentance takes away my regret. Because repentance gives me the Lord. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, Regret is all about us and how I am being hurt and how my heart is breaking. Repentance is all about God and how He has been grieved, how His nature as Creator and Redeemer is being trampled on and how his repeated saving actions are being trivialized and used manipulatively. So what are we sorry about? Is it the sin itself that grieves us, or is it the consequence of those sins in our lives? Is it the damage to our relationship with God that burdens us and causes us to repent? 
Or is it the loss of pleasure because of an idol in our life? If we are repeatedly lapsing into the same behavior, it is a sign of regret and not repentance. Repentance leads to change. So what we do is we need to ask God for the gift of repentance so that sin, listen carefully, so that sin would be so disgusting to you and me for one reason. It damages and severs our relationship with the Lord. If we're only worried about the bad things that are happening to me because of my sin, we are only living a life of regret. If we are grieving because that sin damages our relationship with the Lord, then that repentance will remove the regret and give us what we crave the most, the Lord. Fortunately for us, we know God is with us because of Jesus. Just like with Gideon and Israel, the Lord didn't wait for them to repent before he sent that Savior. He hasn't waited for us, the world, to repent either before sending the Savior. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth as Jesus of Nazareth in his earthly ministry, it was written in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And after Jesus' ministry, it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, which is in our New Testament. It's recorded in speaking about Jesus regarding this verse, and it says this in chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We know that God is with us. God is holy, and he's also merciful. God will never compromise on his holiness. And he will never compromise on his grace. We can't overemphasize one and not emphasize the other. God is not just pure love and accepting no matter what we do. He's not just pure love and accepting no matter what we do. But God will not write you off because you've been too bad. The way we resolve the tension of God's holiness and God's grace is through Jesus and the cross. God's perfect standards were met in his life was given. And God's endless compassion is given to all those who will repent. Remember, we are defined by Jesus. He loved you and me enough to give his very life for, our, for ours. Remember, Jesus is our sign. 
We look to him as proof of God's power, God's holiness, and God's love. We are reassured by the Lord Jesus because we have been satisfied, or we have satisfied the Creator and have full access to Him as our Father through the Lord Jesus. He intercedes for us in this very moment. So rest assured, all of you who are in Christ, we know God is with us. For those who yet, who are yet to believe in Christ. I want you to know that he has shown his love for you before you were ever aware of his existence. And the Lord is waiting for you to come to him. He is standing at the door of your heart and he is knocking. And if you will invite him into your life as Lord, repenting of your sin against God, he will take you from death to life. And he will give you assurance for all eternity that God will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people who are in need of assurance that you are with us. This life is difficult, and we are difficult people. We often focus on wisdom of this world and try to justify our actions. But the truth is, you are perfect and we are impoverished in sin. We need someone to rescue us. So I pray we would all be trusting you through repentance of our sin, that we would be grieved and disgusted with sin because it damages our relationship or severs it from you. I pray we would trust in Jesus as our Lord and we would find great comfort and radically obey you as Gideon did, knowing that you are with us and you will not fail when you call us to do something for your glory and your honor. May we walk closely with you as you continue to uphold your promise that God is surely with us. In Jesus' name, amen.